Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. If you have a Bible, Nehemiah 5 is where I invite you to turn. Uh, The text will appear on the screen behind me, so don't worry. But if you have a smartphone or a journal, I'm going to need you to pull that out today because we're going to use smartphones and journals. Uh, We're going to ask and answer some questions throughout the series, uh, throughout the sermon today. So this is going to be a little bit interactive. You're going to need a journal or a smartphone um, to just take a couple of notes, answer a couple questions, and hopefully start what will be a journey of discovery uh, around the topic that I'm going to be speaking about today. As you take out your journals or smartphones, I want you to write down two words, injustice and privilege. Injustice and privilege. Now, I know those are very emotive words. I know those are words that generate quite a bit of discussion, uh, quite a bit of feeling. Um, But as you write those words down, I want you to give thought to two or three other words or phrases that come to mind as you write down the words injustice and privilege. What are two or three other words or phrases that come to mind as you write down those words, injustice and privilege? Now, as I said, I know those are, 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 are words that generate quite a bit of opinion. So some of you might not be able to contain it to two or three words, which I understand. But you will have time throughout the rest of the sermon to give some further thought to those two words in particular. And what I hope that is going to happen is you will take some of the thoughts that you write down on your phones or in your journal, and you'll be able to expand on them a little further. So we are about halfway through our summer preaching series through the book of Nehemiah, the the series that we've entitled Exiles to Heirs. And the story so far is Nehemiah is a is a cupbearer to the king. He's an Israelite cupbearer to the king of Persia, serving in the courts of the king. And he gets called by God to lead some of God's people, the Israelites, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. And as we've been saying all along, this is not just a standard rebuilding project. Something far greater is happening. The the city of Jerusalem, its walls and its temple represent the the honor and the glory and the very presence of God. And they have been destroyed and God's people have been scattered, which is why Nehemiah is, is so discouraged and so disheartened when he hears in the first chapter of the state of that particular city. And it's why Nehemiah essentially says, here I am, Lord. Send me and use me to go back to the city to restore its city walls. This exiles to heirs journey that Israel goes on, that Nehemiah leads, mirrors this exiles to heirs journey that God is doing right now and has been doing since the fall. Since our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, chose self-reliance and independence over, over trust in God and introduced sin and separation from God. Since that moment, God has been at work in the world drawing people back to himself in relationship. He wants exiles to to come back to him and become heirs of an unshakable kingdom. It's why why we have the phrase. It's it's the it's the essence of why we exist as a church, and why we've been why we we have been showing that phrase all of Jesus for everyone. Our heart as a church is is that is that the fullness of Jesus, the fullness of God, be experienced by every single person. That's our heart. And so, yes, this series, I think, is, is particularly timely 
and particularly pertinent to, to our church. We've, we've spent the better part of half a year unpacking our vision and values framework, our, our, our new vision statement, which is summarized by that banner, All of Jesus for Everyone. But as has been mentioned already, and particularly last Sunday when we announced the zoning approval that we, we, that we received, as a church, we are on a physical building project too, heading towards 4216 West Belmont, starting a construction project, and hopefully by the beginning of next year for us to be able to move there. But a vision framework and a building serve the purpose of desiring other people to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We want others to experience the gift that we have, the gift of intimacy that Jesus provides for us, intimacy with the Father that throws off everything that holds us back and keeps us down. We've been saying this for a number of years, friends, but the the ultimate reward of any faith journey is not the promises of God fulfilled, although they are, but it is closeness and intimacy with Jesus. But what is your vision? What has God burdened you to do? What has God put on your heart to do? How does your passion and your desire fit into the vision framework that we have and and this banner statement of all of Jesus for everyone? That's the question we've been asking primarily throughout this particular series, trying to help each one of us discover and formulate the things that God has put on our hearts to do for him. And we've been answering that question by by asking some probing questions and and learning some things about how to formulate or how to discover vision. I'm going to summarize real quickly. Um, Firstly, one of the things we've been learning is that vision, one's ultimate aspiration, vision starts with a burden or a concern. We see that in the first chapter, Nehemiah hears of of the state of Jerusalem and immediately he is burdened and concerned with the state of God's people and the state of God's city. And perhaps one of the most significant questions we've asked throughout the series is this one. What burdens you? What burdens you? What is it about your immediate set of circumstances that burdens you, that, that you want to see changed or want to see, uh, uh, yeah, that, that you want to see changed? Secondly, we've learned that a vision from God will hardly ever require immediate action. It takes four months for Nehemiah to hear news of Jerusalem and then eventually for the doors to begin to open. Why so long? I think it's simply this. God wants his heart to be reflected in our hearts, and that does take time. We've learned thirdly that while we wait, while we wait for God to open the doors, God is using our circumstances to position and prepare us for what he has planned for us. You see, as the cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah was perfectly positioned to the man, the one man on planet earth who was able to open the doors for him to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And while Nehemiah was waiting, he was doing the very thing that you and I need to do while we wait. We need to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. We've learned that we need to pray for opportunities and plan as if we expect God to answer our prayers. Friends, just like Nehemiah, we are not called to be dreamers. Dreamers dream about a better future. Dreamers desire a better future. We are called to be visionaries. Visionaries not only dream about a better future, but they ask God for the opportunities to be part of the solution. And that's what God wants for us. 
We've learned that what God, what God births, he brings to fruition. Nehemiah's eyes were, were clearly, were, were 100% focused on God. He says in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, because of the gracious hand of the Lord upon me, the king granted my request. You see, sometimes we get distracted by, by when and how. When is God going to answer my prayers? And how is he going to answer them? But God wants us to learn from Nehemiah and ask the question, who? Who has called me? And what has God called me to? We've learned that we need to investigate before we initiate our vision. We need to tell the appropriate people at the appropriate time. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does in the second chapter. He goes at night and he does an, 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 an investigative kind of journey around the city to see what the problem is. And then he gathers the right people to tell them about the gracious hand of the Lord that is upon his life. We've learned that vision thrives in an environment of unity, but it, di it dies in an environment of division. And Nehemiah 3 is exactly that. We see people from vastly different backgrounds coming together to build the city wall. And we see this phrase in the third chapter repeated over and over and over again, next to him and next to them and next to her, they were building the city walls. Israel was a nation in that moment that was, for one, that was with and for one another. And we as a church need to be with and for one another if we hope to achieve the things God has called us to. And then lastly, Nancy taught so brilliantly out of Nehemiah chapter 4 that opposition is a given, but we mustn't be distracted by it. Nancy helped us understand that every single one of us seated in this room are called to be superheroes. And she defined that as this, superheroes are those anointed with God's supernatural power that enable us to face opposition and remain steadfast in fighting evil protecting God's people, and battling the supervillains. I love that definition. Nancy did an outstanding job last week, and if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go onto the podcast and listen to it. Now, all of that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 5, the passage that we're going to look at today. And rather interestingly, the, the, the story of the rebuild of the city walls of Jerusalem take a bit of a back seat in Nehemiah chapter 5. Because Nehemiah has to address something with some of the nobles or some of the wealthy people within the Israelite community. Some of the wealthy business people are using their, their status, they're using their wealth, they're using their influence, they're using their privilege to take advantage of the poor. But most shockingly, not only are they taking advantage of the poor, they're taking advantage of the poor among their own people. The very Israelites who are struggling to make ends meet, certain wealthy people are seeing that as an opportunity for them to gain an advantage. And Nehemiah takes some time to, to challenge these wealthy people and to encourage them to use their wealth, to use their influence, to use their privilege in order to bless and in order to protect and in order to honor God with their wealth and with their privilege. And it brings us to the question that we're going to ask and answer today. And it's simply this. How, how do I use power, influence, status, status, and wealth? How do I use privilege that I have in a God-fearing, God-honoring way 
that will bless others and benefit people. Now, right away, I'm sure some of you are sitting there thinking that you don't have status and wealth and, and, and influence. And, and I want to suggest by virtue of us living in this nation and by virtue of us living in this city, the vast majority of us seated here, if not all of us seated here, have some degree of influence and status and power and even wealth. And as we go through this text, you might think, well, I'm not wealthy. I don't have that opportunity. I want to challenge you otherwise. God has privileged every one of us in some, some sort of a way. And we're going to be asking the question, how do we use that in order to honor God and bless his people? All right, with that as the background, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to read the entire passage, the entire chapter. So stay with me. It's a fascinating story. I'll be making some comments along the way. All right, let's read together from verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Essentially what was happening is that in order to build the city wall, a number of people, a number of the Israelites had to stop their existing jobs, their farming and their subsistence kind of jobs in order to build the wall. And they were putting themselves in a position where they were finding it hard to find food to eat. Verse 3, others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Not only were they struggling to make ends meet, but there was a famine in the land while they were rebuilding the wall, and there was the king's tax that they had to pay. And so you can imagine these people under incredible financial stress. Verse 5, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So in order to make ends meet, they were mortgaging their fields, they were mortgaging, mortgaging their lands, and they were even selling their children into slavery. But here's the shocking thing. It was the Jewish business people, the Israelite uh, nobles, wealthy people, who saw this as an opportunity as, for their own advantage. And they were the ones buying the land and buying the Israelite children as slaves. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And I pondered them in my mind. Some translations say, I thought it over or I mastered my feelings. Can I just say as an aside, mastering your feelings is a very good thing to do before you reply to that nasty email that you have received. Very important lesson here. Master your emotions and feelings before you shoot off that response. And then I accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, as, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. When the Israelites returned to Jerusalem, they bought the, the slaves back from the Gentiles only for those very people who had freed the Jews to buy them back into slavery for themselves. I love their response. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. 
And so I continued, verse 9, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. In other words, let us use our position and our privilege to help others, not to take advantage of them. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe, and I said, in this way, may God shake out their house and possessions, anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised." Now, there's a little bit of a shift in the story because what we've read up until now is Nehemiah executing justice within the community. But something very important happens. We begin to see how Nehemiah is not just fighting for justice in the community out there. He's making sure he owns it personally. And this is a vitally important thing, friends, when it comes to fighting injustice. It can't just be an external thing to appease our conscience. It's got to grab us in our hearts and bring about a change within us. Verse 14, moreover, from the 12th year of of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. He chooses not to take his, his allowance, the government allowance that is due to him, because he knows it is going to place a burden upon the people. Verse 16, we nearly finished. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not, we did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people." Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Let's remind ourselves of the question that we are asking and answering in our sermon today. How do I use the power, influence, status, and wealth? How do I use the privilege that I have in, order, in a God-fearing and God-honoring way in order that I bless others and I use it for their benefit? And as I mentioned, the text that we've just looked at is very loosely divided into two sections. The first 13 verses describe Nehemiah doing work in the community. But as importantly, in fact, probably more importantly, the last section of that particular passage shows us Nehemiah taking the the issue of injustice personally. He's asking himself the question, what do I need to do as a person in order to see injustice overcome? 
And so in those first 13 verses, Nehemiah approaches the wealthy men of Israel, and he challenges them to use their, 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 their wealth and their power for the advancing of others, for the protection of others. Instead, because, well, because they were using it to take advantage of others. And friends, for me, I think that provides a, a very loose, basic definition of biblical injustice. You see, biblical injustice is not some have more than others. Biblical injustice is those who have take advantage of those who don't have. And that's what Nehemiah is challenging. He is going to these people and he's saying, men, we are, we are God's people. We are called to represent God's heart, but we are not doing that. The book of Deuteronomy was, was, was the Israelites' go-to book on how to be the people of God in the nations of the world. And in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, it says this, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And Nehemiah is saying, guys, if, if we are called to represent God and to be his people among the nations, then we have to take care of those who are vulnerable. We have to look after the fatherless and the widow and the foreigner. And quite remarkably, those same loose categories of people are the very people that are still vulnerable today. The very people that are, that, that are most vulnerable to oppression are, are fall into those particular categories. Those who are in, who are in, in the, 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 the minority. Those who are from broken families. Those who are from single parent homes. Those who've been abandoned. Foreigners and refugees. Those who don't know how to fight or stand up for what is rightfully theirs. And we as God's people are called to fight on their behalf. And so Nehemiah's exhortation to the people of Israel is just as relevant now as it was back then. Can I just pause for a moment and say that, as I mentioned in the beginning, we're talking about subjects that are very emotive, privilege and injustice. And there are a number of, number of people in this room who are probably far more qualified than I am to speak about this. This is a very uh, a young journey, a new journey for me, and I'm still learning. But what I hope to do today is at least provide some practical things that we can take hold of to begin the necessary conversation as we begin this journey even further. The second thing I want to say is some of you might be sitting there and saying, well, I'm not using my privilege for the disadvantage of others, to which I say, great, that's not the question we're asking. The challenge we're bringing is not don't use your wealth or your privilege for the disadvantage of others, but how can you use your privilege and wealth for the benefit of others? I'm not necessarily attacking the negative, although we should be. I'm actually exhorting for us to be helpful in the way that we use our privilege and our wealth. So four very practical things that I'm going to mention this morning. Firstly, and they all begin with the letter A, of course they do. <laughs> Firstly, acknowledge the privilege that you have. Acknowledge the privilege that you have. Secondly, ask God for wisdom how to use it. Ask God for wisdom how to use the privilege that you have. Thirdly, act on them. Do something about it. And then lastly, don't ever assume your privilege is ultimately for your benefit. Don't ever assume that the privilege that you have is ultimately 
for your benefit. We're going to come back to each of those four steps. So don't worry if you don't get them down now. You will see them coming up in a few moments. Firstly, let's have a look at the first one. Number one, acknowledge the privilege that you have. This is so important. Writing down or acknowledging the privilege that you have does two things. Number one, it ensures that we become thankful for that which God has given us. The difference between privilege and entitlement is an attitude of gratitude. We can become entitled if we don't respond to the privilege that we've been given with the heart of thanksgiving and gratitude. So that's why we need to acknowledge the privilege that we have. But secondly, it allows us to do a, a, a kind of a reconciliation. We, 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 we do like an inventory of that which we, which we have, and it enables us to see how God can use us to bless and benefit others. So I want you to take out your smartphones or your journals, and I want you to write this question down, how am I privileged? How am I privileged? Now, I know this probably is going to require an hour, if not longer, for you to properly answer that question, how am I privileged? But I want to just throw out a couple of thoughts and ways that I see myself privileged so that it will hopefully spark something in you. Firstly, I am a Christian. I consider that the ultimate privilege. I have been saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ. My sins have been forgiven. I find my worth and identity by virtue of who I am in Jesus. I have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, and I stand firmly in the kingdom of God, the Son He loves. I could go on and on and on, but the ultimate privilege that I have is that I am a Christian. These are in no particular order, by the way, but except that one is first. The ones that follow are in no particular order. I consider it a huge privilege to be a citizen of this country. We are citizens. Me and my family are citizens of this nation. This nation is not perfect. This nation has significant issues that, that, that we are dealing with, but I still consider it a privilege to be a citizen of this nation. Me and my family have opportunities that, that, that aren't afforded to people in, in other nations. We are part of a democracy, a broken democracy at times, a challenging democracy at times, but a democracy nonetheless. I, am, I consider it a huge privilege to be a citizen of this nation. I speak English. Do you know what a privilege that is? Although it is not the, the most widely spoken language in the world, it is perhaps the most necessary spoken language in the world. And I was born speaking English. I'm educated. I can read and write. I am married with children and I live in a home. Can I just pause there for a moment? And when I say I am married with children, I want to make a quick comment about that. Sometimes we can view life in a binary manner. If I love this, it means therefore that I hate that. And life just doesn't work that way. And so when I say I am married with children, I am not saying I am more privileged than those who are single or who are not married. We are just privileged in a different way. And you need to see it that way. You can own that truth without lessening your desire to be married if you are single or to have children if you don't. Those who aren't married, let me tell you, you have a much more available time than I do. Those who don't have children, let me say this, you have significantly greater expendable income than I currently have. 
But as I say, view those as privileges, but don't lessen the desire to be married or to have children if you aren't fall into either of those two categories. I am a white male. That is a privilege. I can do things and I can go places without having to think twice. I can walk the streets of Chicago late at night by myself without having to be fearful of being the victim of a racial slur or propositioned in some sexual manner that has happened to a number of you sitting in this room. So I want you to take a moment, 30 seconds or a minute, and I know this is a, this is a process you will carry on at home, but write down a few ways that you consider yourself to be privileged. What are some of the privileges that you have? What are some of the privileges that God has given you? Just take a moment, 30 seconds or a minute, just going to pause and give you a chance to answer that question. Don't worry if you can't get everything down, but just jot down a few thoughts. How am I privileged? Having acknowledged what privileges we have, I want to move on to the second thing that I think is helpful in in asking the question, how can we use our privilege for the benefit of others? And that simply is this, ask God for the wisdom how to use those privileges. Ask God for the wisdom, how I can, how I can bless others, how I can fulfill the, the vision or the burden that God has placed within our hearts. And friends, this is, this is not just a thought process. This is a, this is a prayer. This is, this is something to pray to God and to, and to wait on God for. If you have the time during the course of the week, read the story of 1 Kings uh, chapter 3, 4, and 5, the story of Solomon coming into power. Solomon does exactly this. He, he lists the privileges that he has, and then he prays this prayer. He says, Lord, I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out all of, all of, all of my duties. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, without wisdom, I won't know how to steward the privileges that you've given me. So you need to ask yourself the question, how can I use the the privilege of owning a car or having a house? How can I use the privilege of being able to read and write and speak English? How can I use the, the particular privilege of having available time or resources? How can I use the privilege of my education or skills or having a particular job to bless and benefit others? Now, I, I, I want to say you need to be wise in this. There are certain professions that you perhaps need to be very thoughtful before you announce to the world. Medical profession is probably one of them. Otherwise, you're going to be getting a cup of coffee and people are going to be showing you things and asking you things that you didn't ask to see. So just be wise as to, as to how, you, how you steward these. But friends, this is so important. What I'm encouraging you to do is not obligation. It's opportunity to serve the purpose of God. Serving the poor feeding the hungry, welcoming refugees, visiting prisoners, praying for the sick, comforting the dying, distributing Bibles, fighting sex trafficking, opposing abortion, fostering children, building schools, fixing marriages, coordinating disaster relief, and traveling to the nations are all things that we should be passionate about, but they're not necessarily things that God is asking you to do, which is why we need one another, because together we can see all of those things being outworked within our church. Friends, this is a vital question to ask and answer. 
This question of how can I use the privilege? What is, God, what is the wisdom that I need in order to use these privileges? Because it prevents the work of, of injustice just being a conscience, conscience cleanser, but rather something that takes deep roots in our hearts. So again, on your smartphones, answer this question, or at least write this question down so that you can answer this question in the course of the week. How can I use the privilege I have to serve those around me? Maybe in, for 30 seconds or a minute, take one of the privileges that you have written down on your smartphone or journal, and maybe just give some very brief initial thought to how can I use that privilege to bless and benefit others, to serve those around me. We just about finished. Just give 30 seconds further thought to that. How can I use the privileges I have to serve those around me? So we've acknowledged the privilege that we've had, we have. We've asked God, we, we, we have or we will be asking God for, for the wisdom on, on how to use them. Then thirdly, simply, we're not going to do this right now because this is on you. We need to act on them. We need to do something about it. And I want to encourage you, the best way for you to act on this is actually find someone within this church family that you love and trust who will hold you to account and tell them what God has put on your heart to do. Or when connect groups start up again in September, this is a great thing for you to do within your connect groups. How has, has God called me? What has God put on my heart to do to use the privileges that I have been given? Make sure you do that at, at some point to tell others to hold you to account. And then lastly, having acknowledged the privilege that we have, having asked God for wisdom on how to act on them, having done something about it, having acted on them, the fourth and very important thing for us to do is don't make the mistake of assuming that those privileges are for your benefit. Be grateful for the privileges that you have. Be blessed by those privileges that you have. Use those privileges that you have. Be thankful for those privileges that you have. But don't make the mistake of thinking they are primarily for your benefit. That's the mistake that the nobles made in Nehemiah chapter 5. That's the mistake that King Solomon makes in 1 Kings. At the end of Solomon's reign, he's accumulated many wives. He's accumulated much wealth. He's accumulated many foreign gods, and he leads the nation of Israel to a point where the nation splits in two. And we need to be careful. As soon as we start to assume the privileges that God has, been given, has given us are for our benefit, that's when things start to go pear-shaped. God has given us those privileges to bless us and to benefit those around us. Now, I want to end by saying that the ultimate example who do we look to when it comes to stewarding privileges well, well is not one another because we are fallen, frail human beings. And it's not even Nehemiah. Nehemiah gives us an incredible example of how to steward privileges. But our ultimate example of someone who, who, was, who, who had the highest privilege of all who had the greatest power of all, he had the name above every name, he had everything at his disposal, that person was Jesus Christ. And he gave up everything. He came down from heaven, 
seated at the Father's right hand with all things under his feet. He gave it all up, the greatest and highest privilege, in order to come to earth and to serve those who were in need. He challenged self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, friends, is when we put our faith in our privileges, when we put our faith in the things that we have and the things that we can do. Self-righteousness is when we serve the community externally, but we don't allow anything to change in our heart. And Jesus challenged self-righteousness. He actually said, for those who are self-righteous, you oppose the work of God. He came to the humble. He came to the broken. He came to the needy, and he preached the good news to the poor. He bound up the brokenhearted. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor for those who were in need. In Matthew chapter 5, he preached the most incredible sermon ever, a sermon that we are going to study in the fall. And he said, blessed are the poor in heart. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And he didn't just preach this. These weren't just words out of his mouth. He spent 33 years on this earth living as a homeless, fatherless wanderer. Finding, seeking out those in need so that he could do all that he can. He gave up everything, ultimately giving up his life so that all who put their faith in him might come to know the reality of identity, purpose, and worth. It's what Paul was writing In Philippians 2, which Mark alluded to in our prayer meeting this morning, Paul writes this of Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he he gave up everything. Rather, sorry, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a challenge for us, not just to receive the the good news of the gospel, not just to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I want to say, if you are here today and and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm not inviting you to be part of a religion or even to join this church. I am asking and inviting you to respond to the invitation that I believe Jesus is making right now for Him to come into your life as Lord and Savior. It's a prayer to praise, Lord, Lord, Lord God, I don't fully understand it. I don't fully comprehend everything. But Lord, I surrender my life to you and I place my faith in you. And I trust that James is going to invite you, if that's a prayer that you want to pray, invite you to come forward at the end so that we can pray and minister over you. So this is not just an invitation for us to respond to the gospel, but it's an, it's an opportunity for us to follow the example of Jesus to lay down that which we have for the service of the king and his kingdom. To say, how can I use the privilege that I have in a God-honoring, God-fearing, compassionate way that will bless and benefit others? We are under no obligation to do everything, friends. 
but we have an opportunity together as a church to do something, to make a difference in someone's life. And we can do a whole lot more together than we can if we just try it alone. Can we close our eyes and pray? And I want to just take an opportunity just to lead us in a response this morning. These last uh, six or eight weeks, we've been inviting the band up and and asking them to, to lead us in a rousing kind of amen and hallelujah response. But I feel like this sermon requires a little bit of thoughtfulness. I feel like this sermon requires a little bit of kind of not introspection, but, but just a little bit of quietness before the Father. And so I'm going to lead us in, in just three simple prayers. The first prayer that I'm going to ask you to pray is, is simply this, Lord, thank you for my fill in the blank. And insert a privilege or, or some area where God has blessed you. Lord, thank you for my house for the finances that you've blessed me, for the community that I'm in, whatever it is, just take a moment to thank God for the ways that he has blessed you. Father, I pray that prayer on behalf of church in the city. And I say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the abundant ways that you have blessed this church. The incredible people that you have added. The amazing friends and family that we have. The salvations that we've seen over the years. The healings and miracles that that are almost too endless to list. The resources, the gifting, the move of your presence and spirit among us. Father, we are thankful for all that you have done and are doing in our church. The second prayer I want you to just respond to or or pray in is, is, Lord, would you give me wisdom to use, insert, insert the blank. Lord, would you give me wisdom to use whatever it is for your glory and the benefit of others. And then I'm going to just ask for 30 seconds of silence. And let's trust for the Holy Spirit to just spark ideas in our hearts and minds of ways that we can use the privilege that He's given us for His glory. We pray for your wisdom, Lord. Father, I pray for your wisdom. Holy Spirit, would you lead us? Lord, we don't want to get busy with good ideas. We want to respond to the leading of the Spirit. Your burden is easy. Your yoke is light. Help us, Lord, to respond in that way. And then lastly, as we land, I'm going to invite you to pray, Holy Spirit, Would you take, insert the privilege that you have, Holy Spirit, would you take and would you multiply for your glory? 
Holy Spirit, would you take, insert in there the privilege that you, that the Lord has identified, would you take and would you multiply for your glory? And Father, I pray that would be true for our church. We open our hands to everything that you've given us. And we say, Lord, would you use it for your glory and for the benefit and blessing of the city around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fantastic, Steve. Just for one more moment, I think that we can... Uh, just respond for a second. Mike, would you come up for just a second? I've asked Mike to share something that he shared uh, in our prayer meeting before. Um, we, you're always invited to join us. We gather downstairs at 920 to pray. Mike, would you just share what you shared? I think it's important. Yeah, James was, uh, gave a word about God bringing clarity. And uh, when he gave the word, I had uh, a picture of my hometown. Uh, Mark and I grew up doing a lot of spearfishing. And when the when it would rain a lot, the rivers would come down and it'd be this like mud belt that would run the whole length of the coastline. And uh, you needed a friend that had a boat to get through that dirty water into the clean, uh, pristine water. And I just felt um, that as a church, we don't need to, to uh, swim in the, in the dirty water. And God wants to take us out into this pristine water, into this, this spacious place where you can see his beauty and his majesty and, and you can worship him. If you feel this morning like you're, you're in that, that muddy water, that dirty water, he has a boat big enough uh, for all of us, from those sitting right at the back to the people sitting right in the front here. And that's it. Thanks, Mike. And I, I think what's so key about that is that boat that takes us out past the mud into where we can see clearly. Isn't that something of what God has begun to do in us this morning through what Steve shared? Just so appreciate God's clarity of heart. So much of the conversation of what Steve preached today can get so clouded, but God is not clouded. God is clear. And I believe that we're leaving today, I know I am, challenged but encouraged for what's in my hand to place that before the Lord and to actually act intentionally and accordingly beyond theory to the reality of God's heart. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City, all of Jesus for everyone.